Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Sam Cantor, and I'm here today interviewing Dr. Michael Hunziker, a professor at George Mason University and author of the book Dying to Learn, Wartime Lessons from the Western Front. There's arguably a saturation of literature on organizational learning in the military environment, but despite this, Dr. Hunziker's work makes a very original contribution to the field, specifically by proposing a new theory of military learning centered on how an army conducts assessments, command, and training. And there's perhaps no better case study with which to test this theory than the Western Front during World War I, both because of the popular conceptualization of the French, British, and German armies as doctrinally stagnant or intellectually unadaptive, but also because we see a case where similar practices led to different outcomes over vastly different timescales. So really looking forward to diving deeper. And Mike, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. And and by the way, can I say that is a terrific introduction to my book. I think you've summarized it better than I've ever been able to figure out a way to do. Well, thank you. So let's start with your background and what brought you to the topic. And specifically, I'm interested to know, was your fascination with this originally related to answering broader questions about organizational learning, or had you honed in from the beginning specifically on the Western Front in World War I? So it's a terrific question. And I have to admit, I came into the field with a fair amount of bias in terms of my interest in the topic. And by that, I mean, so I came into academia by way of the Marine Corps, I actually spent six years as a Marine officer between college and graduate school, and those six years happened to transcend 9-11, as well as the beginning of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so actually, my interest was very narrowly focused, not on the First World War, but on military learning rather than organizational innovation and change writ large, largely due to my experiences in 2003, 2004, and the kind of the early phases of the, the conflict in Iraq. Interesting. And before we kind of dive into the meat of this, I'm curious to know, as an academic, did you find it daunting in any way to actually make that leap to propose your own theory in a work like this? Daunting is putting it mildly. So, you know, I get to graduate school, as do most PhD students, just convinced I'm going to revolutionize the field because I had a good question and nobody else had possibly ever thought about this before. I studied under Aaron Friedberg, who, of course, introduces me to Stephen Rosen's work on winning the next war, which is my gateway drug into the literature. And this is the moment I start to realize I maybe am not the first person to wonder why it is and how it is that military organizations change or don't change. And from there, I get introduced to the much broader literature on organizational learning and innovation across all of the different disciplines. And I remember a few years ago, I actually came across a lit review, and we're talking the early aughts at this point. And I came across a lit review from the late 90s. And the lit review basically said, we tried to track everything written in all the disciplines about innovation alone in the last five years. And we quit after 250 books and 5,000 articles. And that was the moment I realized I may have been in over my head. Um, So yeah, I I think I benefited though from the fact that the study of organizational learning as applied to military organizations had kind of been neglected, fallen out of vogue for what I see as a, I guess I'll use the term problematic. I'm not enthralled with the fact that larger obsession with kind of innovation, adaptation, these sort of discrete manifestations of what I consider this overarching question of, of how do you learn? 
And as we talked about, uh, it seems World War I is a very good case study for this. And of course, there's a rich tradition of literature on the Western Front. Uh, the AEF way of war comes to mind, talking about some of the advances in combined arms warfare or phased operations. So it seems like a, a target-rich environment for you to take to try and apply this theory to. Target-rich is a, is a good word for it. Uh, you know, Overwhelmed by targets, though, is another way of thinking about it, because I did, I managed to kind of immerse myself at the intersection of just these two bewildering literatures, one on learning and innovation and one on the Western Front, neither of which is wanting for really good work. So let's take each one of these three aspects of this theory in turn, and perhaps as we talk about them conceptually, you could tie them into some of the experiences that these three armies had. So we could start with um, assessments. So it seems intuitive in some ways that you know any effective organization will possess some sort of mechanism to evaluate performance. But as you kind of demonstrate, A, that's not necessarily the case, and B, the way in which those assessment mechanisms are executed can vary pretty wildly. Yeah, no, and I think that's exactly what I had noticed in the literature is that so often there's sort of this vague intuitive notion, yeah, you've got to make sure you're analyzing data so as long as you're analyzing data, as long as we see somebody reading some reports, uh, and then from those reports that they're reading from the front lines, then they are disseminating lessons learned documents, assessment is taken care of, and then they move on. And I was really profoundly struck, actually, in a conversation with an Air Force officer that teaches in one of the Air Force PME programs. And she said a few years back to me, the American military pats itself on the back for having this amazing analytic capability, but the American military doesn't learn. The American military disseminates lessons learned, and that is a very different phenomenon, and that really encouraged me to kind of dig in deep of what do we mean by analysis, and what should we expect, and do we see systematic variation in some ways that allows some militaries to do this more effectively than others? And as you applied this to World War I in particular, which army kind of did the best job of implementing these assessments mechanisms? Sure. In here, in almost each of these categories, it there very much is some element of kind of muddiness and messiness in both the historical record and in, you know, really understanding what was actually happening. And so one can debate, you know, which army was more decentralized than the other. When did they make that transition from centralization to decentralization? I say that simply because when it comes to assessment here, there is a clear winner. Uh, <laughs> there are very few things, I, you know, very few hills I would die on, but on this one, I would, I would plant my flag to mix a metaphor and it would be that the German army, and at least insofar as I understood the evolution of these organizations, and I trace them from the late 19th century all the way to the end of the First World War, it seems pretty clear cut that the German military in its great general staff, and then later in OHL, had what I would consider, and I conceptualized theoretically, as being a genuine, rigorous, prestigious, and well-connected assessment mechanism. So you, the second element of your theory focuses on command. And speaking of uh, perhaps the supremacy of the German military during World War I, there's certainly a lot of uh, fascination and perhaps uh, fabulation sometimes with the degree of German decentralized command. And I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with the concept of mission command from the U.S. Army or, excuse my German, Auftragstaktik. Uh, so... The Western Front, though, is not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind if one were to think about decentralized command. No, that's very true. And by the way, your German is much better than mine. I would not even attempt that podcast, let alone in private. Um, I think, though, here you raise a really interesting and important point, which is, especially in the American military, this fetishization of decentralization. 
which, and I, I'm not the first one to make this argument, uh, but I think actually does an injustice to how it is that the German military actually practiced decentralized command and control. And I think that if you took like an American officer who has really read about the German army and you drop them into the German army, especially, especially before the First World War, uh, what they would think the German army was doing would be very different than what the German army was actually doing. And I say this in two regards. Number one, I think the German army, especially prior to the First World War, and even in the first you know couple of years of that conflict, was not practicing what we would currently define as decentralized command and control, which is to say, you know, basically letting junior officers and senior non-commissioned officers make tactical decisions of potential operational and strategic importance on the battlefield. That wasn't happening. They were certainly, the German army was certainly decentralizing a fair amount of control in terms of battlefield decision-making to relatively high-ranking, like mid-career, lieutenant colonel kind of level and above battalion commander uh, officers, uh, but that was not trickling down. The second piece is, and I say this having been through the military education system in the U.S. Marine Corps, which I think holds in higher regard mission command than almost any of the other services in the U.S. military. Uh, but there is definitely the sense, as we were trained as young Marines, that like decentralization means kind of at no point and no level should you really truly expect uh, new officers to have to abide by the decisions of their superiors. It's kind of this, uh, this uh, we refer to it as chaos warfare. Even in our training programs, we were basically told to go out there and solve problems um, and then no matter how bad the solution clearly was at the end of the day, as long as we were having a good conversation about it and we were trying to learn from it, that was acceptable. That was not how the Germans taught or practiced mission command prior to and during the First World War. There was instead this high expectation that the first step in the process of enabling an officer was for that officer to show that they had mastered and understood existing doctrine. And so there was this very centralized aspect to ultimately empowering leaders to make decisions. And again, really up until the middle of the First World War, that was that itself was only being restricted to kind of career officers, mid-level officers, and above. And take the British or French, who we don't have necessarily the same glorified reputation of decentralized command. How did they do in practice? Well, and this is this is really fascinating. And I I like the French case in particular because of what it tells us about the risks of decentralization, of really empowering subordinates without necessarily ensuring quality control. And I think it pushes back on this trope that more decentralization is always better and that decentralized organizations are more agile and more adept at learning and innovating than other organizations. Because again, kind of indisputably, the French army was the most decentralized army on the Western Front before the war and going into the war and really through the first couple of years of the war. And I think what I found in looking at the French case and then going back against my theoretical expectations was that the French were, as one would intuitively expect, really good at experimenting. They were coming up with all sorts of novel ideas. Uh, one here I refer to it in my book would think about Andre Lafargue's experiments in the battles of the winter of 1915. And he, as a young company commander, has these experiences and he kind of sits down and he reflects and he writes this really interesting, it's not a doctrinal manual, but it's kind of like his own experiences and reflections on that battle. And in there, you see the essence of kind of the assault tactics that ultimately emerge as being the, the right way to have fought on the Western Front that the, the Germans and the British do a much better job of actually implementing. But again, this is the challenge of decentralization. There's this cacophony. I mean, there's a lot of young officers with a lot of great ideas. And it's really hard to tell that this one officer who had this one idea based on their experiences in this one battle, does that replicate? Does that generalize? Were they right for the right reasons or were they right just because they happened to go up 
against an adversary in a location that the adversary wasn't very good, but the position wasn't very strong or the geography really just favored. And if we fast forward from 1915 and Lafargue's experiments at a very low level and move to Nivelle, who is this commander at Verdun, who he also has this really interesting idea, this rupture battle concept of going deep, going fast, you know, not waiting around for the artillery, not securing your flanks, which has a superficial resemblance to kind of the quote unquote combined arms solution to the Western Front stalemate later in the war. Uh, it works at Verdun, it works for Nivelle, it catapults him to fame, it ultimately catapults him to replace Yoff to be in charge of the French army. And then he, he fundamentally makes this mistake that a idea that worked in one sector against one adversary that, you know, at that point in the Battle of Verdun was exhausted, uh, maybe wasn't going to work against new German defenses in depth in early 1917, but instead he kind of wholesale replicates it and sends his army off. And in the spring of 1917, you see the French army almost bleed itself dry. Hmm. In the last element of this theory, which uh, as a fellow victim of professional military education, I personally found the most fascinating, is the training element and specifically the degree to which training is subject to centralized control in a classroom environment. So can you talk a little bit more about that aspect? Yeah. I, I, so here I would say a couple of things. First, you know, again, so much of my work in this book was an attempt to really unpack and challenge kind of these these standard intuitions, uh, and again, you know, shibboleth tropes, cliches, about how learning occurs in the kind of organizational context that empower and enable learning. And one of these is, you know, decentralization is best, you know, full stop, like applied across the entire organization. And I think that's problematic for a couple of reasons. Number one is modern militaries are just, they're huge and they're wildly complicated. And so to say like, the U.S. Army is decentralized or centralized. I mean, I can always go and find elements of that organization which clearly defy that overarching descriptor. And so if you really want to apply the label centralized or decentralized, first of all, you have to define it along a spectrum. And then you have to understand that different military organizations organize different activities in different ways. And so you can have an organization which is simultaneously decentralized and centralized. And then going from that intuition, I started to really build on some of Stephen Rosen's insights. So he he doesn't unpack organizations in the way that I do, saying some parts of it are decentralized, some are centralized. Uh, but he makes the counterintuitive assertion that all things equal, if you want to innovate, centralization is better than decentralization. And of course, that pushes back in the literature. So I wanted to explore that. And what I found is if you really think about the learning process and phases, the first phase is figure out you got a problem and begin to experiment with the solution. That clearly seems to favor moderate levels of decentralization. So you can get that variation on the front line and have commanders who are willing to experiment and deviate from established protocols and doctrines. But if you look at the other end of the learning process, which is really you think you have the right answer, now you have to transmit it across the organization. And unlike private sector organizations or public organizations that aren't engaged in war fighting, you got to do this while the bullets are flying. Like your organization is literally being consumed. And so as you're trying to transmit this, you're doing it and you're teaching people in real time. And, and one can think of kind of that photocopier effect. You know, you have the original, it looks pretty good. You stick it on the photocopier, you photocopy it. It comes out a little less clear. You photocopy the photocopy and pretty soon you just have this smudge nobody can understand. And so if you think about that transmission problem of making photocopies of the quote unquote right solution you're trying to implement and you're doing it under the harshest conditions possible, it struck me that theoretically then the expectation should you want to centralize training, I mean, in some theoretical sense, if you could get every single soldier on the front in one classroom at one time and teach them all, that's going to be the most effective and efficient way to transmit those new lessons and to ensure they're taught as well as possible. Now, obviously, you're not going to see any army actually be able to do that under battlefield conditions, although the German army comes pretty darn close as it begins trying to retool its offensive plans 
prior to its spring offensives in 1918. Uh, but you see some pretty incredible uh, variation across those armies on the Western Front. And again, like I said, you see the German army really make an effort to try to centralize training as best as it could, given the just geographic realities of what it was doing on the Western Front. At the other extreme, you had the French army, which had this longstanding tradition of decentralization and of units training their own people, kind of like the Russian military today. And there was a lot of resistance and pushback on any attempts by high command to impose centralization on training. They effectively resisted, especially in the infantry. And as a result, the historical record seems pretty clear. Even though the French army kind of doctrinally had the right answer to how infantry units should be fighting towards the end of the war, they just, they really struggled to ensure that it was being executed in that way by frontline units. And how contingent is this training part on getting the assessment part right? As you look at World War One, do you see any cases of the wrong lessons being transmitted? All, all the time. And, and, and that, again, th this is why I think it's important to, first of all, unpack the learning process, disaggregate it into kind of its key phases, which I really think of as kind of being the phase of exploration, figuring out new solutions, assessment, really filtering, figuring out the wheat or separating the wheat from the chaff. And then once you've converged on what you think is the right answer, now transmitting it across the organization. But this whole argument, this whole process, it, it's really a probabilistic game. And so one of the key caveats, and I try to make this really clear in my theory chapter, and I try to make it really clear towards the end of the book, is, is number one, it, it is a game of probabilities. And so you could have the system in place and still not come up with the right answer. My argument is that if you have the system in place, you are more likely than any other organization that's organized in any other way to get the answer right. And then once you've got the right answer to execute it. But there are definitely cases and examples of militaries on the Western Front seizing on the wrong answer, doing a pretty good job of then forcing that wrong answer across the entire organization and suffering as a result. And a lot of the British and French convergence and attempts on, for lack of a better term, methodological battle, uh, not methodological, sorry, a methodical battle, this idea of using the artillery to completely hammer the other side and then separately sending the infantry across in waves in order to occupy the ground you've just crushed. Right, that idea is quickly seized upon and forced out across the entire organization, and it takes a long time for them to kind of realize that was a mistake and then reorient the military towards combined arms, assault tactics, and elastic defensive schemes. So which one of these three armies put all of these pieces holistically together the best, and did they, in fact, end up on the winning side? So my argument is, and here it... it it's necessary for me to touch on another kind of caveat I assert at the front and the end of the book. But the, 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 the quote-unquote winning army in terms of learning the fastest is the German army. I argue, and I try to show in some might say painstaking detail, that the German army kind of converges on moderately decentralized command and control practices. It starts the war with a prestigious and rigorous and well-placed assessment mechanism. And pretty quickly into the conflict, it centralizes its training system. So it kind of hits the sweet spot in the theory that I offer uh, before any of the other armies. And as a result, really by the end of 1917, we see that the German army has both the doctrinal answer to, but has also really transmitted to frontline fighting units, uh, assault tactics, combined arms, artillery, infantry coordination, and this elastic defense and depth scheme that I, I assert based on the historical record is, is the best way to have fought on the Western Front. So the Germans figured it out first, but then of course you're going to say, well, but they lost. And here's the thing, this comes back to kind of the original argument. I think all things equal, armies that are better positioned to learn are going to be more likely to learn faster and therefore more likely to prevail. But, but learning is one of many factors that goes into determining 
who wins and who loses in a conflict war is war is messy. And so learning, I conclude at the end of the book, learning may be necessary, but it is certainly not sufficient. And you can have the most agile learning organization in the history of warfare. It won't matter if you're making incompetent political and strategic decisions. And I conclude that this is really what ultimately thwarts the German war effort on the Western Front. It had nothing to do with the German army and its ability to master new tactical and operational concepts. It had a lot, however, to do with ham-fisted political and strategic decisions, which really undermined the German war effort at the beginning of the war and then returned towards the end of the war with unrestricted submarine warfare and the Zimmermann telegram to ultimately just make it impossible for the German army to prevail, no matter how efficient and effective it was. And I'm curious, while your work is very much focused on these structural elements, as you did this research, did you find any um, individual leaders playing an outsized role in this process of being able to make some of these changes to training or assessment in a way that perhaps not would have been done had they not been in position? Yeah, it's a terrific question. And it also kind of gets at, I think, one of the less helpful characteristics of this larger literature on organizational learning and innovation and, and especially I'm speaking here about kind of the policy narrative, uh, the policy literature, which is we, we so often we tell the story of organizational change through the prism of individual charisma and leadership. And I just, when I looked at the historical record on the Western Front, although you certainly, you cannot read about German innovation without reading about Willy Rohr and his experiments leading kind of these first proto assault units on the Western Front, 1915, 1916, doing a lot of the experimentation. Um, you oftentimes read about it through the prism of Ludendorff and kind of his masterful tactical and operational ideas, never mind his inept strategic and political ones. Uh, but here's the thing. When you really start to nug down and look at all of the necessary steps that the organization had to perform in order to experiment with new ideas, get all that data up to headquarters, sift through it, distill what works from what doesn't work, reorganize and rewrite that into a coherent doctrine and transmit it across the entire organization. Uh, I just don't see a world in which we can say key leaders are at, at best, at most necessary, not sufficient. And even then, you know, Ludendorff gets a lot of credit for kind of taking over the military, the German army in late 1916 uh, and really forcing this change on it. But the fact of the matter is Ludendorff didn't come up with these ideas. Actually, his predecessor, who's often criticized for being this crazy micromanager, Falkenhayn did. Uh, and Falkenhayn, although, sorry, did not individually come to these, he was the one who actually authorized the experiments uh, and empowered and enabled and resourced a lot of what the Rohr Battalion was doing to come up with the new ideas. And therefore, I really reached the conclusion that at the end of the day, that without that previous work, without that organizational practice and expectation of moderate decentralized command, without the pre-existence of this assessment mechanism, Ludendorff would not have been able to implement these changes. He wouldn't have come up with them. And he certainly didn't have the bandwidth to be able to literally be running out there to every frontline division and army group, uh, ensuring that they were fighting in, in accordance with this new way of war. Hmm. So I'll caveat this next question by saying that you are certainly not a, a theoretical absolutist in any way. And in reading the book, you did a very nuanced and uh, complete job of presenting this theory and potential counterarguments. But as you move past World War One and look at some of the ensuing conflicts. I know at the end of the book, you cite Vietnam, among others. How does ACT theory hold up as you start applying it to other case studies? Yeah, so first of all, I'm utterly flattered that you made it that far in the book to get to the quote unquote shadow cases towards the very end. So I quickly recognized um, 
that I am a mere mortal and I only have like one lifetime and I can only work so much on one project. And I really wanted to show with high levels of rigor as best as I could achieve that my theoretical expectations that I kind of paint early on in the book when I describe act theory, that they, they really do correspond well with what we saw happen in the First World War. But I also quickly recognized that, you know, number one, at the end of the day, I was doing a policy PhD. I wanted to speak to the policy community. I wanted to offer a forward-looking argument. Uh, and number two, the world has changed somewhat significantly since the First World War. And so I thought it was kind of necessary, although I could not write a second book at the end of the first book to really go into depth, I thought it was useful to offer a pair of kind of short case studies just to suggest kind of a plausibility probe, if you will, to suggest that the relationship that I was positing actually existing or existed in the First World War was also valid, appropriate, and useful way to think about more modern conflicts. And so what I do is I do a series of a, a structured comparisons where I look at the U.S. Army and I look at it in two different conflicts. And both of those conflicts are not traditional kind of great power, conventional wars of the type I'm talking about on the, on the Western Front. And so I spend a few pages kind of exploring at a very high level of, of, of generality, but the U.S. Army's experience in Vietnam and then comparing that with the U.S. Army's experience in Iraq. And I would say, so first of all, that it's really messy. The, the case itself is messy. I, I remember when I was presenting this in my dissertation defense, my committee pushed back and said, well, Vietnam, it's, this is 2013. Vietnam, it's too recent. We don't really actually necessarily know exactly what happened, the reasons it happened. I, I said, you know, fair enough. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think we have enough to establish a pretty strong correlation. And I find that all of the variables in my act theory, I think, are present in the U.S. Army. I think that might shock a lot of people. And that they they operate in the way that we would expect. And yet, of course, people point out, like like the German army in the First World War, that the U.S. Army doesn't win in Vietnam. Um, and my argument there actually, again, comes down to politics, which is at the end of the day, the U.S. Army made a overarching strategic decision not to focus on counterinsurgency, which it had an appropriate doctrine for, but made the decision that all things equal, there was a necessary division of labor and how it fought in Vietnam, whereby South Vietnam needed to handle the pacification and stabilization mission. It was better equipped and positioned to do so. And the U.S. Army, number one, needed to handle the conventional threat coming from North Vietnam. And number two, had to maintain the ability to ultimately, because remember, in the U.S., we saw Vietnam as being a front in a larger Cold War, that the U.S. Army needed to be ready at any moment to basically go off and, and fight in Germany or elsewhere. And so my conclusion is these overarching political imperatives more or less swamped an organization that was ready and equipped to learn and to master counterinsurgency warfare had it, you know, had the political need to do so. I then compare that against the U.S. Army's experiences in Iraq. And certainly, if we, we don't think we completely know what happened in Vietnam, then we definitely don't know exactly what happened in Iraq. So my conclusions are very tentative. But I do think there's a lot of reason to suspect that the U.S. Army, again, it, it had all of the necessary ingredients that I kind of outlined in my act theory. It had them at the beginning of the war. And I think, at least in 2003 to kind of the 2008, 2009 timeframe that I'm really focusing on, uh, we see pretty strong evidence that the military it learned quickly, maybe not as quickly as we would have liked, given that we know how that conflict unfolded. But we do see in relatively short order, the U.S. Army and the U.S. Marine Corps, although they're not the focus of my analysis, uh, we see them recognizing that the methods that they were using in Iraq 2003, 2004 weren't working. They were counterproductive. And we see this very rapid effort to kind of go back into history, to analyze and assess and the ultimate production of FM3 TAC-24 and kind of its application on the front lines of that conflict. 
And I'll ask you one more uh, wild card question before we leave it at that. So you mentioned uh, Rosen's work at the beginning of this, winning the next war. Generally speaking, do you think armies learn better during peacetime or wartime, or are these two sets of circumstances so different that they can't even be compared? It's a it's a terrific question. And so, you know, for those who either haven't read Rosen or or it's been a while, he makes the argument that basically we have to treat these as two kind of distinct phenomenon, that the causal mechanisms, the timelines and everything else, they're so fundamentally different. Uh, you can't quite treat them as the same, same thing that you're trying to uh, explore and answer. And his conclusion is basically wartime innovation. He's looking, I think, a bit more narrowly at innovation than I am where I'm looking at learning. But he says that wartime innovation basically is it's really hard to achieve, in essence, because the timelines are just too short. The way I look at that question, though, is uh, learning is inevitable. Like it has to occur in wartime because we all know, you know, whatever plan you come up with, it's not going to survive first contact with the enemy, like Mike Tyson, of course. You know, everybody has a strategy until they get punched in the face. And so I think every military organization, certainly the U.S. military, any Western military, has a pretty coherent doctrine. And I think that no military officer out there is going to be surprised by the fact that once the shooting starts, we're going to realize there are gaps and holes in the doctrine. Maybe we're completely off base, like we were in 2003. Maybe we're, we're pretty close, kind of like we were in the Second World War, but there's still a heck of a lot of tweaking that has to happen. And so in my mind, learning, learning will occur. The question is, can we find, can we isolate and generalize in a predictable policy-relevant way, some way so that we can learn faster than Darwin is otherwise going to force us to. Because when, when Darwin is forcing all the learning on you, right, that's a, that's a cost, it's a price that's measured in, in, in treasure and in blood. And so I do think ultimately there is a way to, to learn faster and to kind of conserve on those resources, conserve on those lives. Uh, and so, you know, that's why I focus on this particular part of the problem set. And it's why I think wartime learning is necessary we can't assume that whatever techniques work for peacetime learning will necessarily carry over into wartime just because of the exigent nature of the crisis and the fact that your organization is literally being consumed as you're going through the process of learning. Uh, and why I do worry, and maybe this can get us to some policy questions, but I do worry that the U.S. I think is appropriately looking at what the next war will look like and thinking about you know how do we need to update our doctrine, but we are paying insufficient attention to, okay, if that war does happen, are we ready? Do we have the mechanisms in place to learn as rapidly and as quickly and efficiently as we can? Hmm. After uh, reading your book, I certainly hope so. Uh, and I think we'll leave it there. The author is Michael Hunziker. The book is Dying to Learn, Wartime Lessons from the Western Front. Highly recommended to anyone interested in this topic. Mike, it was fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Great questions. For New Books Network, I'm Sam Cantor, and we'll see you next time.